the Cycling Tips Podcast. My name is Abby Mickey, and I'm here today to talk about bike racing, bike racing adjacent news, and more bike racing. I'm joined by Dane Cash. Dane, hello. Hi, Abby. How's it going? Uh, it, it's, it's going well. Nice, busy weekend of bike racing. Yes, very much so. Ronan, nice shirt. Thank you, I think. It sounds a bit of sarcasm. No, no. the polka dots are in. <laughs> It's not white and red polka dots before. We should just clarify here. It's a mostly green t-shirt that I most often wear to bed, but today I'm wearing during the day. And we've got Kit Nicholson on the podcast, new to the podcast. Kit, hello. Hello. Kit does most of our weekend editing, which means that she watches the bike racing. This is true. So joining the podcast today for the first time, but the first of many. You'll be at the Tour de France, so they'll be like really used to you by the end of the summer. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> uh, before we dive into talking about all the racing over the weekend, Amstel Gold, both men's and women's, the Itzulia Basque Country, and whatnot. Dane, I, I was really wondering how I could get more out of my rides. Do you have any idea of how, how I could, you know get to my unlock my full potential i I do have some ideas abby uh if you want to get more out of your rides beyond just distance time and pace how about advanced gps navigation and the ability to see upcoming hills the hammerhead Carew 2 helps you find your path forward and unlock your full potential the Hammerhead Karoo 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options so you can explore with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. Hammerhead's bi-weekly software updates and new feature releases are unmatched by the competition, so unlike other head units, your Karoo 2 continues to evolve and improve with each ride being better than the last. The Karoo 2's touchscreen display is intuitive, responsive, and in full color, so your navigation experience is more like a smartphone than a GPS device. You'll see your data more clearly than ever, while also withstanding rugged conditions since it's water and scratch resistant. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom color kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code CYCLINGTIPS at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners, so don't forget to use promo code CYCLINGTIPS. That's a free custom color kit and premium water bottle with the purchase of a Karoo 2. Go to hammerhead.io, add all three items to your cart, and use promo code CYCLINGTIPS today. Thanks to Hammerhead for sponsoring the podcast. Hammerhead recently added the the climber feature where it like predicts when you're about to hit a climb. And I kind of thought that they missed a bit of a trick there because rather than predicting when you're about to hit a climb and showing you it, should they not like predict when you're about to hit a climb and reroute you around the mountain so that you don't have to <laughs> climb the hill? I'd like that. I have a, a Flora Duffy limited edition Hammerhead Crew too. It is. That's fantastic. Um big fan of Flora Duffy. I went to college with her. Pretty cool. I'm super curious about this um, custom color kit. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, you can swap out colors for the casing of the Karoo 2. There's a bunch of different colors that they they have to make it so that your computer, you know, goes with everything else you're wearing and riding. 
Well, hopefully they have bright yellow for my factor. All right, let's get into some bike racing. We're going to start with Amstel Gold Race, as it was the the most recent and potentially the most exciting race of the weekend, both the men's and women's, but we'll start with the women's this time. We talked uh, the men's Flanders first last time, so we'll do the women's Amso Gold Race first. I think for this race, there's a lot that could be broken down, but really the the major takeaway from the race was a attack by Marta Cavalli with like 1.8 kilometers to go after the final ascent of the Kauberg that was perfectly timed and the Italian riding for FDJ Nouvella Aquitaine Futuroscope rode solo to the line with a group of six chasers behind her and was able to take her first world tour win. Probably the biggest win for her team, not their first world tour win because Cecilia Ludwig won a stage of Burgos last year, but definitely in terms of one day races, their biggest results ever. Demi Vollering took second for the second year in a row, and Liana Lippert was third. Ronan and I had a debate <laughs> after the race about whether it was luck or just all Cavalli's timing. I think it would be kind of interesting to have this debate on the podcast, Ronan. We both agreed it was an amazing <laughs> performance, so let's now call it a debate. I, it was. I feel like there's a there's an element of luck in bike racing like all the time, so... To kind of put it 100% on Cavalli, not to take anything away from her, from her because it was an incredible attack and also an, a really impressive effort to hold off the chasers to the end, which is also an interesting conversation. But the timing of her attack was right after the Kalberg, right after Annemiek van Bluten had put in a stinging attack. And she wasn't able to ride away, but she did basically create the separation of seven riders and, and Cavalli had this moment. There was this moment where they came over the top of the Cowberg and everyone fanned out across the road and Cavalli just took it and attacked. And she happened to attack right when Ashley Momenpasio was looking the wrong direction. Everyone was looking the wrong direction. There were so many factors at play that, that helped her right away. Whereas my argument was that she made her own look and perfectly timed a move and probably made a split second calculation that this was the exact right moment to go that, you know, the, potentially the other riders in that seven, uh, seven rider group might look at the two SD works riders. And yeah, she, she played on that. So while I somewhat agree that she benefited from some luck, I, th I think she made her, her own luck and that. Yeah, I, I just felt that we should praise the writer rather than focusing on uh, on on the little bit of luck that that did help her. Of course, you know uh, Ashley Momenpasio could have reacted instantly and closed the gap, or any one of the other writers could have. But you know, when you look at Cavalli's attack, she was at the back of the group. Uh, she waited for the the lull in the in the pace, and then as soon as that came, she made the most of it. Whereas time and time again, we have seen other writers in the exact same scenario either you know attack from the front of the group and like telegraph it to everybody else or hesitate a second too long or overthink it or you know just any number of things that uh, can cost you the victory and but in this one situation Cavalli just like did everything so perfectly that I thought you know yes obviously you have to have a little bit of luck but I just I just thought it was the perfect attack and I 
I think it was, you know, as I said to you yesterday, I'm a bit, I just love these kinds of finales where it does get a bit tactical. And, you know, I think yesterday was just my favorite finish to any race so far this, this season. That's a bold statement. <laughs> I think it helped. I don't know if this is luck. I don't know if it's a strategy, maybe a little bit of both. So I'm not necessarily coming down on one or the other side of the argument here. But uh, I think it really helps that it's, it's Marta Cavalli and not uh, an Annemiek van Vleuten. Uh, if, if this had been a van Vleuten attack, I think people are on it more quickly. Um, and I think it's not that Cavalli's a, 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 a name that nobody has heard of or anything. She's certainly known to be a talented rider. But I think in this situation and, and in situations like these generally at the end of a race, being kind of a maybe the you know fourth or fifth person that people are going to be watching as opposed to the first has a huge impact. And we see races end like this all the time where it's not the favorite who wins because if the favorite were to try to attack here, you know, they'd, they'd be marked. Uh, but if it's Marta Cavalli, then maybe she gets a little bit of breathing room and that's maybe all she needs. I think she was definitely underestimated by, by that group. And she was also perfectly positioned over the top of the climb. Like we talked about on freewheeling that maybe Ashley should have been the one to attack right then. But if Ashley was sitting first in the bunch. She was like right in the middle of the road, right in the front of that group. So she would have done what Ronan just said. Like she would have attacked from the front and they would have all seen it coming. But Marta was perfectly positioned on the back of that group. She was able to take them all by surprise and a combination of them all looking at each other and also Ashley having Volering, her teammate in that group who would nine times out of 10 win in a sprint against all those riders. Everyone looked at Ashley to chase immediately and Ashley hesitated. Like Ashley was on the front of that group and she flicked her elbow for uh, Van Vluten to come through and Van Vluten didn't come through. So that, that split second was all Cavalli needed to get enough space. And there just wasn't enough road for anyone to bring her back at that point. Yeah. I'd listened to the free one podcast just before this. And it was interesting. The conversations you had about, you know, how Ashley could have reacted differently. And, you know, it, it seems harsh, but I think you're 100% right in what you're saying and that in that moment when her move uh, to follow Amik van Vluten on the Kouberg hadn't worked out for Ashley, in that situation, knowing that Vollering was there, she then just has to instantly commit to to riding for Vollering, given that that's the team's best chance. Uh, and she just clearly didn't do that. You know, that split-second hesitation looking behind, getting, possibly getting a message on the, on the radio, uh, possibly not really wanting to sacrifice her own race. Who, who knows? Only, only Ashley really knows that. But uh, certainly in that, in that moment, there was only one thing that would have stopped Cavalli, and that was if Ashley Mulman Passio had reacted instantly. And when that didn't happen, Cavalli almost had uh, the, the one secured in that split second where she made the attack. Yes, there was 1.8k to go, but that initial hesitation just gave her all the gap that she was ever going to need. And this this race often finishes really fast after the Cowberg because there's just not much space in between the end of the, the top of the Cowberg and the finish for the women's race. And we've seen that in the past, the year that Kasha won, for example, in 2019. And Cavalli just... I've been picking her for years to win a race like this, and it's just really exciting to see her finally pull it off. I think she's a rider that's really, really exciting because she's got a lot of potential on these short, short, punchy climbs. And 
longer climbs as well. She rode really well at the Giro Donna last year. Um, so I think that this win for her is just kind of the beginning of what hopefully will be an incredible summer of racing. I think much like Grace Brown, she will not be underestimated again. Like we saw Grace Brown last year win Bruges de Pana with like an attack that nobody saw coming that they probably should have, um, given that she's been quite good in time trials and the world championships and everything in years past, but she had that one race win and she's not been able to replicate it because people were watching her now. And for Cavalli, I think it'll be a little bit the same and it helps that they're on the same team because now, you know, hopefully that means that they can play off of each other and it's just exciting. It's exciting for another team to be in the mix. Uh, we've only had SD works and track Segafredo win world tour races so far this year. So for another team to, Throw their hat in the ring is is pretty awesome. Only slight flip on the car. Just it was just you know socks over the leg warmers. Seriously, <laughs> come on. She said she was You're really winning, cold and she was afraid to get. Cold. You've got socks over your leg warmers. <laughs> Team over. Team socks. So over. like, don't get me wrong. So cool. Long sleeve jersey, leg warmers, toe covers. But my God, have the socks onto the leg warmers. Come on. Shut up, Ronan. You're this is <laughs> you're wrong. Socks over. Always. I, I reckon we, I reckon we could get a solution to this question right here, right now, could we? No. I'm, I'm in Ronan's camp. Dane, you better be on my side. Socks under. No! <laughs> Sorry, Abby. But we've been over this before. Uh, all the way, socks under. <laughs> I yeah. quit. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, it depends what kind of socks they are. If they're like really cool socks and you want to show off your socks, then socks, socks over. But Kaylee's socks over, right? Yeah, Kaylee is socks over. And he's not here, so I feel like, you know, it's a little bit unfair to, yeah. But that's still two against three. We still lose. I, I will just say that, like, neither under nor over is right. I think the perfect setup is where the socks just perfectly meet the end of the leg warmers. What? What kind of leg warmers are those? Are you wearing, like, knee warmers pulled all the way down to yeah. your top of Small your socks? Small socks, is, and I'm, I'm on board with that, no, no. actually. No, no, no. I, I know he I know, I hates that, but... Yeah, I hate small socks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what have I started? Anyway, let's move on. No, 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 Ronan, you're. This is why you're not allowed on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But you, uh, you are know what? Always it is? On the the listeners, <laughs> the listeners should probably know at this point. We we were just playing. Ronan and I were just playing the long game with with Kit. We we knew at some point we were going to need support for socks under, and and in the end, here we go. We've we've got three. So that's it. All worked out perfectly. <sighs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, let's talk about the men's race because the race was super exciting, but one of the major takeaways was the photo finish and the drama that it caused after the race. Now, usually I throw to Dane, but I'm actually going to throw to Kit for this one because Kit was on the desk for this race. So Kit, you want to give us like a tiny breakdown of Amso Gold Race and talk about it? Sure. Well, before we get to the... uh biggest story of the race. I mean, it was a, pretty much an Ineos Grenadiers show once the breakaway was caught. You had the uh, their new young gun, Ben Turner, who seems to be one of the best signings of the spring, um, rinsed the peloton for a few K. Um, and then Mikhail Kwiatkowski just went bang off the front, took 10 riders with him, including Tom Pidcock, and just about Mathieu van der Poel. Um, and the 11 riders rode together for a bit. And then 
but there was a lot of looking around, a lot of looking at each other. Nobody really wanted to work. They kept their gap, but Kwiatkowski, with the insurance of Pidcock in the group, um, attacked again into the final lap. And then Benoit Cosnefoy was the only one to bridge across. Um, so I think, what was it, about 15 kilometres that they rode together? Um, and then we had the sprint. Um, Cosnefoy led it out. And it came down, as Abby said, to the second photo finish in two years. Uh, and then we had ridiculous drama. Um, the same images as last year, weird sort of setup of the two riders waiting with their team staff for a result. And then Cosafoy starts celebrating before we see the photo finish. And then we see the photo finish, and lo and behold, it's Krakowski who got ahead. Um, so it was all just a bit bonkers. <laughs> I feel like they kind of I feel I feel bad for Conafois, obviously, because that's a terrible situation to be in. Uh, and I also just feel like it kind of took away from the the brilliance of the finale and the closeness of the of the battle, um, the drama of the wrong guy being told that he had won, uh, which is a real shame. Uh, so hopefully Benoit can win something soon to, you know, overturn that terrible day he did handle it remarkably well when he you know thought he had won and then yeah. was told he hadn't yeah he it's one of those things where i feel like if you're second in amstel that's a really great result but if you're second in amstel after thinking you were first that probably won't feel as good the race had a great finish though and it, and it was one of these moments i feel like mikov kwiatkowski has done this i don't know five times i'm, I'm like mo- many times in his career where he has shown us that he's a very talented rider who can do everything. He can climb, he can sprint, and he can time trial. He's one of the most versatile riders we've seen in, in this past decade. And then he'll just kind of disappear from the results sheet for a while and like won't won't be a contender in, in races that you'd think he's going to contend. And then he'll just uh, go win Milan San Remo. Or uh, he'll just go win the Amstel Gold race. And then he'll go do it again. Uh, and then he'll go kind of go quiet again in the, in the results department. And it's really hard for for people who write race previews uh, to know when he's going to be great and when he's going to be riding for someone else. And in this race, it, it, Tom Pitcock seemed like the obvious choice uh, for for any else. Obviously, Kwiatkowski's had already won Amstel, but at this point in his career, it just didn't seem like he was going to be the guy. But then he goes and wins again, and it sort of feels like, oh, of course, Mikov Kwiatkowski can win Amstel. He, he, of course, yeah, we've seen him do this before. He's got the skill set. He just likes to take wins after not having shown us something for a little while. It had been quite a while since he'd taken a big win. I think he was kind of plan like A plus or plan B sounds a bit harsh, but for any else yesterday, there was a moment when he made his move at the top of the last ascent for of the Cowberg for the men's race, which is what, 20 kilometers ago, 15 kilometers ago when he made his move. And you could see Pidcock actually just like give him a nod and give him the go ahead to like, I don't know whether it was to like pull on the front or make a move. It looked like it was to make a move. But once he got that, once he got that nod of approval, so to speak, he then, you know, he, he made it count. And coming into that finale, I know Cosnefoy was so close and you could maybe say he let it out a bit too early or, you know, he could have waited a bit longer. But I think in that scenario, you know, it is very, very difficult to beat Kwiatkowski, you know, he's so he's such an intelligent bike rider, has done it before to Sagan and Al Philippe in a similar sprint. And just, you know, he looked like um 
It looked like he wasn't going to get it, but he somehow he managed to pull it off. Yeah, I was surprised that Konofal was as close as he was. I mean, I I, I would have thought that uh, Kwiatkowski would have won that sprint easily because he's a very fast finisher. We've seen him win bike races against very fast finishers before. And credit to Konofal for making it close because he he did. Obviously, he made a photo finish close. He made it, you know, being told he was the race winner close. Yeah, he does have form in these sorts of sprints, though. He won the Britannia Classic having been away with Alaphilippe and Mikael Honoré. So that was he was definitely not going to win that. Yeah, I remember feeling the same way in that moment, too. Oh, wait, Konofal won that? Really? Uh, so I guess I probably should have uh, altered my perception of how fast he was as a, as a sprinter. Just to add to Ronan's point, uh, with the Pidcock, Kwiatkowski uh, co-leadership, um, I mean, it was thirty. It was pretty much 35k to go when he went hard off the front. And at first it did kind of look like, to me anyway, you know, Ben Turner had just peeled off and it looked like a sky in the mountains sort of moment where he, it was his turn to push the pace. Um, but then once they were, they had the group and it was the two of them together. And there was that question mark over Pidcock with his tummy problems and apparently he had had no sleep. I mean, I wish I could function that well on no sleep. Um, but yeah, but Pidcock and Matthew van der Poel, I felt would kind of watching each other and then Van der Poel not being potentially on top form. Um, Kwiatkowski had the, yeah, he had the insurance of his teammates and, and was tired of watching everybody else. I think part of the plan as well, as we've seen, might have been for Pidcock to like try to bridge across to Kwiatkowski or at least try to do that at one point in the finale. And I've seen a bit of talk last night about, you know, was that the right thing to do or not? Um, I don't really think it was that you know there, there was a bit of controversy around was he chasing his teammate or this that and the other I don't really think he was in that scenario because the climbs there are so short that you if you've got the legs you can punch and get clear but if you don't it's not really going to set up an attack to come over the top of you that's going to close to your teammate so I kind of I, th- I think there was a bit of fuss over nothing in that situation but uh, I do I agree Kit, that I think uh having the insurance policy of Pidcock and the group behind. And likewise, Pidcock having the insurance policy of Kwiatkowski ahead kind of took the pressure off both of them and just made it... I, I, I don't think... Well, I would venture as far as to say I know we don't get the same outcome if it's only one and the Osrider in the front group. It's the fact that you have two of them there that just means that this finale can unfold the way that it did. It's worth pointing out that Kwiatkowski's last win was that Tour de France stage where... Him and his teammate, uh, Richard Carapaz, finished like hand in hand in 2020. And before that, which can you can you count that as like a solo? I mean, I feel like it, it's still a win. A win is a win, but it doesn't really fall into the same category as the win he had at Amso Gold. Before that, his last win was stage eight of the of Perry Nice, which was in 2019. So pretty long time ago. Pretty big drought for a guy who's won the world championships. Yeah, he he takes long times in between big wins. And he is on a team of leaders, so he does yeah. have that. And he also had a he had a stretch where he he kind of stepped away a little bit as well. Um, so yeah, but he's clearly back on form. He also gets paid quite a lot to work for other writers most often, so <laughs> there is that to be said as well. well I think this is a good segue to, to be blunt about it. Uh, there was a rider in this race who apparently said afterward that if he'd had one more teammate, uh, 
things could have gone a little bit differently for him. And I'm thinking that he might have wanted to sign with not a pro continental team uh, if he wanted to have that be the case. I mean, I think Vanderpool is an awesome rider and really great for the sport. And maybe it's good that he's not on Ineos. But he did sign a long-term contract with a team that is not Ineos or Yumbo and, and clearly isn't going to have that amount of support. Uh, and I think, yeah, it, it's tricky for him. I think generally cycling benefits from him not being on one of those teams. But at the same time, I think he definitely has to work hard to, to put himself in situations where he can where he can win because he doesn't have that amount of support in an Amstel gold race. He has, uh, Alpecin FedEx has definitely done a really nice job of building around him the past couple of years. And they've, they've got riders, they've got other riders who can win races. Uh, Jasper Philipson and, and, and uh, Tim Merlier. But they don't have that many other great support riders. And particularly not for Amstel, for, for Hillier races. There's not a lot that Vanderpool can count on, I think. Uh, so it just makes it uh, much harder, I think, for, for Vanderpool in the Hillier races. And we saw that this weekend, and we, we're going to continue to see it. And I, I was a little bit surprised that he said anything about it, because it just I kind of felt like stating the obvious and not something that you would want to say. Yeah, it, it definitely seemed that way. I his team did a lot of work early in the day. Um, they worked with Ineos to bring the breakaway back, which, I mean, maybe they didn't have the legs for the whole race, but they did a lot. They, they were always on the front, it seemed. It seems to me that this race actually isn't hard enough for Vanderpool to do his thing. Like, if you compare this race to Flanders... Flanders is a little bit tougher, and I feel like this race has some punchy hills, but the parkour is different enough that it doesn't it doesn't favor him as much. I think that's true, but I think also he has teammates that are um, more capable on classics, well, cobbled classics terrain than this, which is just you know climb, 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 climb. I mean, obviously there's climbs at the Tour of Flanders, but. They have cobbles on them, and they're not you know, not necessarily the same kind of climb. And I think his team is a little bit more geared towards, um, yeah, cobbled classics than, than an Amstel or or other Ardennes races. There's so many more riders that can factor in a race like Amstel than can factor in a race like Flanders, and so it's he falls into like this very elite category where yes, he can hands down win Flanders, but Amstel Gold is just too hard, but also not hard enough for him to be able to right away or like make a huge dent in the race if that makes when sense. he also has to follow other attacks exactly yeah. will i say something stupid about i'm still going to finish up the way i normally do and then we can move on to something else go for it <laughs> yes <laughs> i think next year they need like a, a boxing referee on the finish line who can stand with the two people in the photo finish and then finally lift the hand of the winner just as it's confirmed <laughs> the, it's crazy that the that this race is finished with a photo finish like twice in a row and maybe more. And the women's also like the women's top, the women's podium was very, very close as well. Isn't it after like Cavalli. three years since they changed the finish? And in that three years, we've had the Vanderpool demonstration in 2019. We didn't have the race in 2020, but we had the amazing photo finish last year. And we had the amazing situation unfold after the photo finish this year. And I, for one was kind of, skeptical when they removed the cowberg from the finale of the men's race but uh, clearly i was wrong it's just like made for arguably one of the most exciting races of the spring season this is why kaylee is not allowed on the podcast today because he doesn't like amstel gold let me start over i was supposed to say something stupid that made sense 
but <laughs> uh, no, it was a good race, but we can move on. We can talk about the Itzulia Basque country that happened all of last week, where I think going into it, we all expected the overall would be taken by Primoz Roglic, but that was not the case. Dane, do you want to give us a little breakdown of what happened in, in, ba- in Basque? Yeah. Um, well, I think we can just r- really briefly, because if you listen to the Cycling Test podcast, you probably have a decent idea of what, of what went on. Uh, but uh, Danny Martinez took the win and did so. He, he led and then uh, he ceded the lead to Remco Evenepoel and then he retook the lead on the final day uh, and thereby, I think, added some intrigue, which is always fun at the Ineos Grenadiers for, you know, who's going to lead this team in the three Grand Tours this year? Uh, you know, maybe Danny Martinez belongs in that conversation. Uh, and he, I think, did a great job over the course of this race to just continuously finish up there uh, highly on stage after stage. And one of the things about the Basque Country that makes it such a hard race is the constant up and down every day. Um, it's it's a race where there's there's no huge mountain climbs. They don't you know they're not they're not climbing big alpine uh, lengthy ascents. It's it's just this constant up and down kind of along the coast up there in the Basque Country and. You need to be on your game every day, and, and that's a really hard thing to do. It's really hard to not have a bad day uh, and and not have a bad minute even, and you can't have a bad minute at the Basque Country. Uh, and Danny Martinez ended up taking the win. Uh, Remco Evenepoel, after leading there for a bit, ended up finishing fourth. Still a fine race, and it was very close at the top. So the, the top uh, six riders all finished within 32 seconds of each other. Um, but I think Evenepoel... I feel like he's going to be frustrated with that, and he 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 needs to show more often that he can um, continuously be at the best at his best uh, over the course of a, of a race. Because we've seen him, you know, kind of flashes of brilliance in stage races, but at the very biggest stage races, uh, this has happened a few times. Uh, so I think he'll be pretty frustrated with that. And then the yeah, the other big story was Yumbo and uh, Roglic and. Jonas Vingago, both in this race. So it seemed like they might run away with it, just like they did last year when they went 1-2. That didn't happen. Uh, Roglic finished 8th. Vingago finished 6th. Uh, Vingago was was only 32 seconds down on GC, whereas Roglic was 3 minutes and 18 seconds. Uh, Roglic said that he had some muscle issues uh, afterward. And I don't think anybody's going to be too concerned about him finishing in the top 10 at the Basque Country instead of destroying everybody and winning it. But it certainly was unexpected that he didn't do that. With Remco, we've seen him in Algarve leading out Jakobsen doing these crazy 1K leadouts that like split the peloton to pieces. And he was doing the same again in Basque Country for <clears throat> uh, Alaphilippe. And then, you know, he did seem to... I didn't see the stages over the, the weekend there, but he did seem to suffer... Uh, from fatigue in the end up and dropped to fourth place. No, you're right. It was the he steep climbs that he seemed to um, struggle on most, I think. Um, but he, cause, uh, but I think also fatigue, I don't think he knew that he was, well, on Saturday's stage, he sprinted for the bonus seconds, having chased back for 20K, having been dropped on the penultimate climb. Um, so he, f- he felt good in that moment, but then two minutes later on the really steep part of the last climb, he just went pop 
But he did only finish 24 seconds behind the leaders. Yeah, this was... Uh, we, yes. we probably should focus on how close it was at the top. It wasn't like he tumbled down the GC and finished way down. I mean, it was it was very close up there, and it was close over the whole course of the race. And that last climb uh, was 8.5%, something like that, 8% or something like that. So not an easy climb to finish on after you've been going up and down, up and down for every day. Uh, and maybe not necessarily his forte, I think, the, the really steep stuff. Remember at Valencia, he struggled. I think it was Valencia, he struggled on that steep climbs. And he said in, in a post-race interview that the steep climbs were not his forte. And it was something he needed to work on. But I feel like it's also part of his being on Quickstep Alpha Vinyl, which is not necessarily known as a GC team. So is doesn't um, isn't as great... As being uh, as like Ineos or Yumbo Visma being like, hey, you need to conserve every single ounce of energy you possibly can, and also his age, like he's still super young, and he would have had a blast leading out Philippe for the sprint on stage four, three, um, stage three. So I think there's a factor of that in play as well when it comes to Remco. Yeah, to the steep climbs point, actually, it's probably worth saying that on. Friday's stage five, um, which was won by the young Ineos guy, uh, Carlos Rodriguez. Um, he finished third, and that was a really steep finish, but it was much less lumpy the rest of the day. So it's that combination of really steep and long day and lots of climbs. Dan Martin had a series of interesting tweets last week where he pointed out just how difficult Exulia has become. And he said that he never really got up overall because he thought it was so fatiguing that it left riders burnt out for the Ardennes. And the one year where he, he wanted to have a podium in Zulia before the end of his career, so he focused on Zulia in 2019, got second on the podium overall, but then went into the Ardennes completely burnt out. Something to that effect was his words. And it just struck me when, you know, we don't normally see GC leaders doing these huge leadouts. We've seen Remco do it twice and the race is already so demanding yeah, it just it was the combination of those two things that kind of had me thinking. You know, is he just doing too much here in the service of others? The only time we've ever successfully seen a GC rider lead out a sprinter was was Wiggins on, on the, the Champs Elysees when Cav won. <laughs> yeah, but it was the last day, so it's it doesn't matter if you're wasting energy at that point. But there's a reason that teams like uh, Quickstep decide to take a sprinter's team to a race like the Tour de France or something like that because you have to focus on either sprinting either stage wins or focus on the general classification and that's you you can't do both like it's not it's not possible and Zulia is one of those races where it's challenging enough that maybe in in some other of the week-long stage races you can do both like Torino Adriatico for example but this is just not one of those races were we gonna say something about Vingegaard and his bike handling oh my gosh the the thing about Yambo Visma is like we had Vindegaard, Vindegaard <laughs> uh, crashing people out twice. And then also Tij Minute at um, Amso Gold, like nearly riding into a car on one of those descents. Oh, that wasn't so, Tij Minute, I don't think, but yeah. Van Hoydonk. Van Hoydonk out to the breakaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's with these Yumbo Visma riders not being able to handle a bike? Roglic likes a good crash as well, doesn't he? He's usually he's, a pretty good he's bike He's a big handler. fan. Uh, Roglic loves a good crash. He, he may crash a fair bit, but he's a great descender, I think. Now, we shouldn't knock him too much. Former, former ski jumper, you know? 
I have heard that. Yeah. Oh, really? It's been a long time since we made that joke. It's lucky for Vingegaard that um, that uh, Izaguirre could get up nice and quick, and I think uh, he will be quite glad that Yon uh, Izaguirre was able to win the race, having sw- swept him to the ground. The the crash with Vlasov uh, on that really really steep wet stage, and they were both running their bikes over the line was pretty. That was pretty something. That was something. <laughs> I think it goes to show just how steep it was and how close to the finish they were also, that they were they only lost 18 seconds having fallen to the ground and then run, mm-hmm. or ran. Um, so yeah, that, that, I was quite impressed with that. Too steep for them to get back on their bikes. Very much so. <laughs> it looked quite cyclocross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, we can move on from Medulia Basque Country, but before we do, Shadi was on the ground and he caught up with Alan Davis, who's a former professional rider, currently working for Lotto Sudal. So, since we haven't had Shadi on in two weeks, we should uh, hear a little bit of Shadi on the ground. Come in, right. First of let me say, we, hello, um, we're in, we're in Andorubia, at the Izulia Tora Basque country, and I've grabbed hold of a local who's not a local, but is a local. Alan Davis, you live all of about, what, 5k from here? Yeah, about that, mate. In between 5 and 10k in a place called Oyatsun, not far away. Um, 20 years I've been here now, so uh, yeah, it's been my home away from home. So you would have you would have come here when you were with, what, Anse back in the good old days? Settled yourself here? Yeah, exactly. So uh, turned pro in early years or amateur years in Italy and then uh, came over here when I signed with Onse, exactly. And uh, yeah, now my wife and family and uh, it's been home for, like I said, 20 years now. So yeah, it's been the nice part of the world, especially for a, for a family, which is, uh, which is nice to have uh, that environment, you know, especially with where I come from. It's uh, not a coastal, it's a big part of Australia, it's a coastal part of Australia, coastal town, so uh, it's similar in terms of the lifestyle also. Uh, it's a little bit hillier here, but in terms of the lifestyle, it's pretty similar. Yeah, two kids in little kit. How old's your son? Four, we've got Mikel four and Claire's eight. In full little kit, because you're working as DS this year for little, but not at this race, which is quite a surprise. Yeah, well, I come to um, Lotto this year, uh, specifically as a DF, DS and specifically with Caleb Ewan. Um, unfortunately, got a bit crook after we're in Torino there and good preparation for San Remo and he got crook. So uh, he hasn't raced since then and we've had a bit of a change of program. So he's off to Tour of Turkey next week and so am I as a DS. So this week it's uh, visiting the, the rest of the Lotto team, Lotto Sudal team and uh giving uh, just a cheerio to the team and, uh, yeah, back to work next week. So you've come on as uh, Caleb's uh, expert sprint. And obviously this year, the the world goes back to Australia. Wollongong, is that how I'm saying it right? And last time it was in the world, you, you had an half-decent ride, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate, half-decent. Um, that was good. It was a, you know, first world road world championships in the history of in Australia, so it was nice to yeah get on the podium third, so bronze medal there, and that's uh, yeah I didn't think I'd see it again, but yeah we've got a worlds again in uh, in Wollongong as you said mate, and and um, you know with Caleb Ling Matthews we've got a you know I think we've got a strong team there lineup for 
for Australia at the at the local world championships again. So we'll see where that goes. Will you be helping him towards that goal? Is that sort of an end game for the rest of the year? Um, internally, yes. Um, obviously, as Caleb's DS with internally of of the team and uh, with Lotte Sudal. Um, with the national team, I'm not involved with, um, but definitely it's part of our plans as a structure as a team and also Caleb and I as a as a team and as our outfit as well. And uh, it's definitely within our um, plans and it's, you know, it's on our radar at the end of the year. All right, let's turn, uh, turn to, if you've got time, can we just have a little chat at Zulia? Now, obviously, you'll know all the roads round here, back here, and what what are the standout stages? What ones are you looking forward to? What ones have you told the team, this is where you need to go, this is what you've got to look out for, this is what you've got to do? Well, in terms of the GC contenders, you know, today is the first one as uh, the only time trial of the event. I know it's 7.5k. I know it really well. It's quite technical, but this race generally can come down to seconds so uh today is the first stage where you have to start on the right foot and uh if you're doing the gc you need to be yeah you need to start today um and then the last day also at arate it's no big secret that arate has always been the the queen stage of the utsuli now for quite a lot of time so um the in-between stages uh you know on specifically they're all dangerous stages you have to be ready that's just a part of the Utsuli as a as a race it's been that way and as a spectacle it's great as a spectator it's uh it provides a great spectacle for cycling um every stage has its different you know elements and values to it but if you want to do the gc here you have to start you know from day one to to be on the right foot and it, like i said it could come down to seconds so uh yeah from from today and uh you know, until the last day in Arate, anything could happen, but you definitely need to uh, be mind on the job from day one. Who's your hot favourites? Is there any local lads who are your hot favourites? Um, there's some local ones that know the, the park horse really well, the Sigere brothers, Peyu Bilbao. Um, obviously, Roglic is a big, big hot favourite. But I think in terms of a complete team, I think Ineos have a have some nice cars to play in, uh, in some different options, let's say, uh, with Yates and G, Thomas. Um, so I think they have some some cars to play and could, maybe could, could play some different tactics in terms of uh, sharing it around a little bit of leadership So as the race unfolds. And uh, yeah, but I just those, those guys, the local bass guys are also always very, um, motivated for this race for a, you know it's not many times throughout the year you get to race here so they know the roads they're going to be motivated and you know throw in Roglic and Ineos I think they're the favourites Who's your favourite for today then on the lotto team let's, let's, who, yeah who's going to go for it um, For our team I think uh, here with um, uh, Steph Kras uh, Maxime Van Gils they're young talents we have a really young team actually here so um, I think you know, let's be realistic. They can be at the pointy end of the results, but uh, in terms of um, individual stage honours, uh, you know, if we get them in the sort of top 10, top 15, I think it would be a nice day for us. Spot on. I should let you get back to work, eh? Right, we're going to have to organise a, a bike ride. Now, last time, actually, last time we I got to ride with you, we went to that calf just over there, just at the start line. Exactly, mate. It's been my stop, stopping bloody cafe for 20 years so this was our recovery loop doing this uh 
actually basically the same as uh, the time trial. It's like an hour, 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 between an hour and hour and a half. Uh, depends how, obviously the speed now is more an hour and a half. But uh, yeah, this was always my recovery loop. And then we always headed north when we needed to go further and longer. So we have to organize a ride indeed, mate. Too right, right. Have a good day. Thank you very much. All right, before we move on and get to Nerd Alert, really quickly, Shell de Priest happened on Wednesday as well, which there's not a ton to talk about, but it was a really interesting race because the men's race ended with a solo victory from Alexander Kristoff, which is very exciting for any fans of him, which is most of Cycling Tips staff. But it was a really crazy race with a lot of crosswinds. The peloton was blown to pieces from early in the race. I think I tuned in with 80, 90K to go, and there was only two groups of 15 left in the race at that point. And Christoph attacked on one of the final cobble sectors and rode solo to the end. I think Intermarche has won more classics and semi-classics so far than Quickstep this year, which is... I think they have. I mean, Scalopers is not the biggest race in the world, but it's it's something. And yeah, it it was an impressive win. And I feel like the one of the takeaways from that was that you can't write Christophe off for Perry Roubaix. And he's done this sort of thing before, not necessarily solo, but this is how he won Flanders. I mean, he went on a long range attack with Nicky Terpstra. And that was very unexpected at the time, because I feel like when he did that, he was still in the sort of this guy is a sprinter mode. And then he showed at Flanders that year that, oh, he could also do this. Uh, but it's been a while since he had done this sort of thing. And winning actually solo as opposed to in a group of two is is even harder. And he has not done that. Trouble is that the weather's going to be good on the weekend. And he likes bad weather. So I, I think I um, might have been at the Arctic race one year. He is one of many people who I think if you ask him, do you like bad weather? They will say no. Uh they don't like racing in the rain. They just happen to be good at it. But he is good at it. I don't know if he likes it, but I think he's good at it. He is definitely no, good no, at you it. You know what to ask him if you ever chat with him. Yeah. If you like racing in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> On the women's side, Lorena Weebus took her 40th career victory, which is pretty impressive. She's only 23, so it, it was an incredible... I mean, she's, she's just incredible. The, her sprinting is... Um, nearly unbeatable. The only person that's been able to beat her is Elisa Balsamo, and she's on a, just a stellar year this year. So another win for, for Weebs. Weebus? Weebs? I've heard it both ways, so I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. Dane says it's the second way. Two syllables, Weebus? I think Weebs worked better in this. Just the way you finish your sentence, Weebs definitely worked better. Whether that's her name or not, I'm not sure, but it just it just worked. Coming up this week, we have the Tour of Turkey is going on all week. And then on Wednesday, Brabant's Appeal, the midweek classic before Paris-Roubaix. Coming on Saturday, the women's race, Sunday, the men's race. And we are not going to talk about Paris-Roubaix because Cycling Tips will have a team on the ground, which I'm pretty sure includes Ronan. And they will be doing a Paris-Roubaix preview episode coming out on Friday. So stay tuned to the Cycling Tips podcasting feed wherever you get your podcast for for a special edition Perry Rubey preview episode. We don't have to talk about it. Dane, we don't we don't have to make picks this week. Well, who's going to pick the the favorite if cuz if it's just the people <laughs> on the ground, it's just going to be a bunch of like 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 
Yeah. I, I 50th, just, 60th, 70th. Yeah, good point. Our poor listeners. Huh. Wow. Yeah, well. They're, they're picks, not tips. Crucial, crucial difference there. All right, but I think we should move on really quick because we didn't get a nerd nugget last week. But this week, I told Ronan he does have to include a nerd nugget in this episode. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Ronan, you did a deep dive into Wout Benart's Red Bull helmet. I did. It doesn't seem like a topic that requires a deep dive. Like, you know, clearly he's getting paid a substantial amount of money to wear a helmet with the Red Bull livery on it. Uh, but there is actually a surprisingly uh, bigger story to it. And and the the story is actually not specifically why White Van Art is wearing a Red Bull helmet, but why White Van Art is road racing in a Red Bull helmet, while others who wear a Red Bull helmet for off-road racing and cyclocross re- revert to their standard team edition helmets for, for road racing when they join their World Tour teams again. And when I started to look into that, yeah, I just... It actually is much more common than I had even thought of. You know, I, I knew of Tom Pidcock, who wears a, a Red Bull helmet while cyclocross racing but and mountain bike racing, but not on the road with any of those Grenadiers. But surprisingly, he does wear it on the road with the Great Britain national team. Um, and then you've got the likes of Cataplanca Voss, who wears it cyclocross racing, but not on the road. We've got um, Chloe Diergaard, who wears the Red Bull helmet while representing USA, but not while representing Kenyan SRAM. It just was a very confusing situation. And when I asked Red Bull, I got very little answers. And when I asked White Van Art's agents, I got very little uh, in any way of any kind of response. Uh, but what I did sort of manage to piece together was actually the the reason that most teams don't like the idea of the Red Bull helmet on the road is that it takes away from the sort of team uh, nature of all the riders wearing the same uh, kit and the same helmet and, and keep them very, very matchy-matchy. Uh, so a lot of teams don't like it for that reason. Apparently, a lot of teams don't like it because it's, their nutritional sponsors seem to think that Red Bull is a clash with uh, their support of the team. Now, Red Bull doesn't make any energy food. They kind of took a bit of a dive into that in the article as well. And most of these nutrition companies don't really make any energy drinks. Uh, but still, you can see what the issue might be there. And then surprisingly, uh, or perhaps not so surprisingly, but Yumbo Visma, uh, the Yumbo part of that uh, co-sponsorship is a chain of supermarkets in the Netherlands and Belgium. And unsurprisingly, that chain of supermarkets stocks and sells Red Bull energy drinks. And also Red Bull happens to sponsor the Yumbo Visma speed skating team. Uh, Yumbo happens to sponsor Red Bull racing Formula 1 team's biggest star, Max Verstappen. Uh, personal deal there between Yumbo and Max Verstappen. So it's kind of a case of all those coincidences coincidences uh, merging together, which make it much more possible for Wout van Aert to road race in a Red Bull helmet, while Tom Pidcock, his Enios Grenadiers team, is owned by uh, Enios Group Limited, who partly own the Mercedes Formula 1 team, who are the biggest rivals of Red Bull racing. So when you start to look at it through that light, it's perhaps less surprising that uh, Mr. Radcliffe would not like to see his star rider, Tom Pidcock, road racing in his team kit with a Red Bull helmet. It's actually, yeah, there's a bigger story there than I ever thought there might be, but when we started to dig 
Um, turned out there was quite a lot to uncover. That's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Say it like you mean it. No, it is. No, it really is. I never would have thought. I never would have thought of the F one parallels because obviously, like anyone who's watched Drive to Survive knows that there's you know the Mercedes versus Red Bull is like has been the storyline for the last four seasons, and but I've never put it together that that Mercedes is also sponsored by Ineos and that yeah Red Bull. I wonder if that means like Pitcock will be able to keep wearing his Red Bull helmet in cross and mountain bike for well I guess he if you just you said he doesn't wear it in any of in any events except when he's racing for GB. Uh yes on the on the road he doesn't wear it in any um events and you know the the uh the most recent sort of example of that is when he went from winning the the cyclocross world championships in a Red Bull helmet to just two weeks later racing for the NS Grenadiers in the Tour of the Algarve with the standard edition cask helmet or standard team edition cask helmet. Uh, so they, they, they certainly don't like the idea of him road racing in a Red Bull helmet. Uh, there probably is also a certain aspect of Red Bull isn't really bringing anything to the wider team. They're, you know, they're, they're solely supporting one rider. So uh, the team's not going to like that too much. Um, but then when you look at it through the cyclocross or the mountain biking lens, those are much more individual sports. So I guess it's it's a bit more acceptable then. But yeah, I do wonder going forward, you know, when I, I presume that, you know, Tom Pitcock has signed some sort of deal with Red Bull to last X amount of years. When we get to the end of that period, you know, will Tom Pitcock be permitted to renew his partnership with Red Bull? Who knows? Um, only time will tell, I guess. But for what it's worth, I did also ask Laser, were they involved in rebranding White Van Art's road racing helmet? Um, they they didn't actually apply the new design to the helmet, but they were involved in the design process and the approval of the design and the process used to apply the design. And they were sort of most focused on not what the design was, but just that the safety element of the helmet was unimpaired and that White's um, head had the same protection as it would have had otherwise if it was yellow and black. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it sounds funny, but it is actually quite important, I guess, because I know, you know, some, some paints can, can actually cause damage to, to helmets and that. So, um, quite, you, you, you don't want to be crashing on a helmet that's not actually going to do you much good. You're out there doing like the hard hitting journalism for cycling tips. <laughs> you joke, but this is the first time I've, I've felt like a journalist. <laughs> yeah, so. No, I don't think Abby was joking. That like you, that was pretty, pretty awesome. Oh. You got some great information. Yeah, I wasn't that was joking real, at all. Really great. <laughs> yeah, like I haven't slept since because I've been you know, continually drinking Red Bull to try and you know yeah. just. <laughs> but um, you ever had a Red Bull? <laughs> I had a Red Bull. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of Red Bulls. I've had Red Bull today. <laughs> I can't stop drinking oh, Red Bulls. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, this podcast is not sponsored by Red Bull. It no, might be. The, the sponsorship of teams, the sponsorship of teams is always a really, really interesting thing. And and yeah, when you get into kind of the big money aspect and, and stuff, it's, it is super fascinating. So I recommend everybody check out that article that Ronan wrote, and I will drop it in the show notes for anybody who doesn't want to go hunting around i think i think that's a good place to end the episode we talked a lot talked a lot about things and and we'll be back we'll be back on friday well we won't be back ronan will be back on friday kit and dane and i will not but 
maybe next week. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Bye.